Paul's life. Today is the swan song of the Apostle Paul, and it might seem an interesting um, thing to bring up at Christmas time, but it's where we land in our study of the Christian life of Paul. The big surprise on the life of Paul is going to blow your mind. Paul is a Christian. He's a believer in Jesus, and so he's a disciple and a disciple maker of Jesus. You can say, well, what do you mean he's a disciple? That means one that's a student of Christ who makes more disciples. And if you look at his life as we have over this last going on, I don't know how long, a long time, three years or something. If you look at the life of Paul, you see he's just fulfilling what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. He's going throughout all the world, and he's making disciples of all the nations. And he's your example par excellence under Jesus. He's the under Jesus example for us for living our lives to eternal profit. And now we get into the portion of 2 Timothy where he makes a self-evaluation. Hey, Christmassy, that's fine. He makes a self-evaluation of his life at the conclusion. And I'll read it to you here in the King James translation. Um, we're not a King James-only church. Uh, we love the King James Bible translation, um, and it's beautiful and artistic and all that it is. And we, I usually read out of the New American Standard, um, but then, of course, we're going to read it in the original. So, um, so this is what the King James says. For I'm now ready to be offered. Um, we'll see why that's the worst part of this translation, uh, this portion, the way the King James rendered it. I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I've kept the faith, henceforth, henceforth, good translation, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Whenever I read the King James, and I love to do it, I always want to throw a little southern drawl. In there, I don't know why. I think it's because most of the King James preaching I've heard was by like Adrian Rogers and people like that who uh, who brought it right out. And uh, anyway, um, this is Paul saying he's going to die, and the Lord Jesus was born laid in a manger with the shadow of the cross over him, and you and I are all in line. In a way, today we're in the house of mourning, which. Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to be in a house of mourning mourning than a house of feasting because we take heed to ourselves. If there was a passage in the scriptures to preach for Paul's funeral, it would be this passage. His self-evaluation of his ministry and success. <clears throat> will you help me juice it a little bit? Will you look at it with me in some detail this morning? He says, for I am already being poured out. It's a verb. It's not an it's not a, um, infinitive as the King James translated. It's a verb that actually has a very technical meaning. And this one word, spendomai, means to be poured out as a drink offering. To be poured out as a libation sacrifice before God. It has a lot of baggage, a lot of historical weight because of the Old Testament. And it's a way of a Jewish pastor, rabbi, teacher, the Apostle Paul, describing his life in terms of the whole burnt offering. It's a way of Paul saying, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. 
This is a sacrifice that is a soothing aroma in Numbers 15 and Numbers 28. The sacrifice is a soothing aroma to God, the burnt offering is, and the libation that goes with it, the pouring out of wine in Numbers 15, is a soothing aroma to God. Verse, uh, I'll grab it, verse 4, Numbers 15. The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. That's a, that's a quart or so. And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen, with a burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. And so this is a, vol- a, a voluntary sacrifice to God. They don't have to bring this one, and, as described in Numbers 15. But if they want to bring a voluntary or fellowship sacrifice, then this is how you do it. You bring it as a whole burnt offering to God in this case, and you pour out a measure of wine to God. One expositor suggests the grain portion is reflective of the manna that sustained the children of Israel in this phase of their wilderness wanderings. This is after Numbers 14, and they're, they're being given law right after great failure, given law, legal instruction here that, that adds to God's instruction that we've already heard in Leviticus. Perhaps the, the grain offering is a remembrance of God's sustainment of Israel in the wilderness through the manna. And certainly we know from this context that the grapes in Canaan are huge. They brought huge clusters of grapes when they brought back the report at at, um, Kadesh Barnea. And so the wine offering, a reflection of God's provision and the, the land flowing with milk and honey. Mr. Welch was not around, so this would not have been a, a, a pasteurized grape juice that has not fermented. This is definitely fermented wine that they would pour out as an offering to God. For a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. See, God gives them a recipe. This is exactly what I want. For the drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine, a soothing aroma for the Lord. It's always a soothing aroma when you're offering these fellowship offerings to God. And that's how Paul portrays himself. He's the libation. He's the wine that you're pouring out on the offering to God. That's that's how he views himself. Think about that. It's fast. It's complete. Pour it out. It's done. And it's soothing to the Lord. Well, I want to be fair and do the whole Numbers read on the drink offering. So I got to go to Numbers 28. Now, these were voluntary sacrifices that Israel was told to bring when uh, they wanted to bring a fellowship offering. And there was exactly how to do it. But in Numbers chapter 28, (laughs) verses 4 through 7, you shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. This is the daily sacrifice responsibility that Israel would bring to the Lord. Command the sons of Israel, verse 2, and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings, by fire and a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old and without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. God required the Levites to do a a representative burnt offering for the, the nation every day, two lambs a day. 
morning and evening sacrifices. You shall offer one of the, uh, and, and remember, those of you that are, that are kind of new to the Bible, and that's fantastic, there's so much to get here. The lamb sacrifices, all the sacrifices of the Bible are pointing to the cross. They're all looking at what Jesus would do as the one sacrifice who could take away the sins of the world. As I mentioned from Psalm 40, sacrifice and burnt offering you haven't really desired, but a body you've made for me. But here, um, the, I just want you to hear the description of the continual everyday sacrifice because it isn't a wine offering, it turns out. You shall say to them, this is the offering by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs. And then verse four, offer the one lamb in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering, which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. Then in verse seven, the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. And that is not wine. And that is not distilled spirits. People have, you know, and, and we try to read our culture into the Bible. They had not figured out distillation of alcohol, like ethanol. That would happen hundreds and hundreds of years later. And yes, God knew that was there, but they're not doing that. There's not stills in Israel, so they have whiskey to pour out on the, on the altar, okay? What is strong drink? It's fermented grain. Today we call that beer, Pardon the expression, on Sunday morning in a Baptistic church. But it's beer. It's a beer offering. They would pour out fermented grain beverage. But the Lord wanted that every day, twice a day. It wasn't a wine offering. It was a beer offering. And he said the two drink, their drink offerings, um, let's see. In the holy place, you shall pour out the drink offering for, of strong drink to the Lord. And then the other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering of the morning. And as and its, its drink offering, you shall offer it and an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Whether it's the uh, fellowship offering of Numbers 15 or the daily sacrifice with its beer libation to God, maybe that's just so foreign and alien to you. I, if, if you've never heard that before, well, you learned something today. But this fermented grain is what God wanted as his libation, as an offering to him. And notice that he called it a soothing aroma. Now, now, Paul says, that's what I am. I'm the drink offering. My life is over, and my whole life is spent as a soothing aroma to God. My objective today, one, one idea I want to impose upon you, or, or superimpose, impress upon you, that's the word, impose. I want to impress this idea on you. You want to be this way. If you're not there, if you're not like, I don't want to be a drink offering to them. I don't want to be just for God's pleasure, God's pleasing aroma to him. If you don't have that down as your only basis for significance, you're missing it. You're missing life. Paul did not miss life, and you and I certainly could. Can you be content with God seeing your life and death as a soothing, soothing aroma to him? That's the challenge of Paul's words where I'm telling you he is under Jesus the exemplar par excellence for our spiritual walk. He's the one we know the most about in the New Testament after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so under our Savior, we do need to key off of the Apostle Paul because he gives us more self, uh, self-description than anyone else. So we have the sacrifice of Paul's life. And believers, he is saying it with a smile. He is saying it with contentment and satisfaction. We know that because of what he'll say in verse 8. 
After you figure out your life as a sacrifice to God, the next question is timing. I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The kairos, the appointed time. Kairos and chronos are Greek words for time. They often will be used interchangeably, so you can't really be real dogmatic. But generally speaking, kairos would be, if you're going to pick one for a point in time or an appointed time, that'd be kairos. If you're talking about a period of time that's kind of vague, like the Middle Ages, that would be a chronos. But again, they're, they're interchangeable, interchangeably used, like we say the, in the times of or in the period of. Two different words would mean the same kind of thing. But this was the word for his appointment, the way it's used here. It is the, the kairos, the time of his departure. The question here for you and me in terms of application is timing. One of the greatest struggles we all face is the problem of timing. It's not set by us. When you were born was not your call. When you die, and I don't care how clever we think we get with the timing of our death, it's not our call. God does permit us to be foolish, but it's all within his providence, within his arrangement. Two key features of our relationship to time, beloved, that you and I need to get hold of and be comfortable with. Paul doesn't have any more time. He's, it's, his race is run. He's just looking back. The, the test has been taken. He's got the results. He's looking at the, the printout. He's about to head off to graduation. That's, it's over. There's no more opportunity for him to serve is the point. The first thing you and I need to figure out about time is that there's not as much as we ever think. And you should probably get pretty nervous about how little time you have. We should all feel that way. There's an urgency in the Bible all through, especially the New Testament, an urgency. It's any moment that Jesus comes for us, and immediately there is the judgment seat of Christ, any moment. So you have less time than you think, and, and hey, uh, you don't know when you're going to be called home, absent from the body and present with the Lord. So what do you do if you're feeling urgent? The first thing is you need to take your life one day at a time. You only have today, and you do plan. You do make plans for tomorrow. That's part of what you do with your day. But you plan for the Lord. You plan as unto the Lord. You plan to glorify him. But you only get to have today. And that makes all the anxiety that you have about tomorrow, that's not your problem. Jesus teaches that. I'm summarizing Matthew chapter 6. Tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. You just manage today. It's one day at a time. Paul thinks this is one of his last days on earth. The, the, the Christian historians after uh, the period of the New Testament say that Paul was killed under Rome, under, under Nero by the Roman lictor. His, he was beheaded possibly, according to Roman tradition, after being scourged or beaten with rods, as our Lord was. You can only do one day at a time. And so where Paul thinks his life is short, borrow from him. Borrow the feeling he has that this is it. This is the last day. He's writing a letter to equip Timothy. That's what he's doing with his time. He's building the church of Jesus Christ with his last hours, with his last Time on earth. And the second thing is harder than one day at a time for some of us. It's to wait on the Lord's timing. It's to say, I'm not in control of when it happens, when whatever it is. I'm not in control of what other people are going to do, and my schedule depends on their choices. And that's really the tough part about being in this life is all those people around us that we're depending on 
and we can't help it. We have to deal with them making their choices, and then my choices are contingent on what they do and all the troubles of this life with people. But you're not dealing with people, really. You're dealing with the Lord. God's got a perfect timing. When you're struggling with timing, it needs to happen now, and it's not happening now, and I don't know what to do. Relax. I know that's easy to say. Somebody on the outside, wow, that looks really, stress- really stressful. Huh. Well, good luck with that. You know, it's easy to say when you're spazzing about time. Relax, but re- we really need to. And when you're struggling with this, go read you a story. Grab Exodus 14. It's written as the epic deliverance story, and the whole point of the story is timing. God traps the Israelites in a terrain feature where they're a perfect target for Pharaoh's rage and vengeance. He traps them. He leads them with the cloudy pillar out to this impossible. It's the worst possible strategic or or tactical position ever ever, uh, chosen by a a field captain, by a a commander in battle. And God is the captain. God's leading Israel into this trap. And they're stuck with their backs to the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh comes and tries to kill them. And then God puts his finger between Israel and Pharaoh. And there's this wall of fire that stops Pharaoh's chariots. And he does it just at the right time. None of Pharaoh's chariots got in to kill the little babies of the Israelites. He put his finger. And God says to Moses, why are you calling out to me? Go stretch your hand across the water. After Moses tells Israel to stand fast and wait on the deliverance of the Lord, timing again, God says to Moses, why are you calling out to me? You go take your stand. And Moses stretches his hands out over the water, and that does nothing except present what God does. It's like, it's like a, a, a ringleader or a conductor saying, look at God. That's what he's doing because it says God sent a wind to stack the water up in a heap, the Red Sea. So what was an impossible circumstance, the worst blunder in all military history becomes, oh, God's got tools and weapons and strategic options that nobody else has. So he stacks up the water on a heap, dries off the the sea floor. Israel walks across on dry land while God's finger is holding Pharaoh's chariots at bay. And remember, it's all about timing. And so just as the last Israelites are, are, are Far enough across the Red Sea, I changed the illustration, they're far enough across the Red Sea to, uh, to, for the Lord to, to, to re- remove his wall of fire. He removes it, and it's perfect timing. Pharaoh is like, he's been, he's, he's been like a rubber band pulled back, and he's under this tension, and finally God removes the wall of fire, and Pharaoh shoots with his chariots into the gap, into this space. That's a perfect, perfect tactical nuclear device called the water of the Red Sea. It's a perfect destroyer for this army. And just as the last little sandal of an Israelite on dry land gets up on the rock out of the water, in comes the water and kills all of Pharaoh's um, army. Just destroys the possibly the greatest military in the world at that time. With one little ocean, <laughs> one little sea. And it's all about timing and the reason, and, and the whole Old Testament looks back to that event. And it's amazing to me how little Christians know about that event because they've watched movies. And we're, we're caught up on the, the visual splendor of the, the stacking up of the water, but we don't notice that there's a whole way God tells this story in the pen of Moses. Read it in Exodus 14 and you will be singing God's praises in Exodus 15, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. So the point I'm making about timing is God has it. It's God's timing, and we need to embrace it. 
because he's good at it. And he's shown us plenty of revelation in the word that he's doing something with the timing. Are you ready to face the end? The Apostle Paul is ready. He tells you in this passage he is ready for the end. I've done my job. My work is complete. I don't get to work anymore. That's what he's saying. Are you ready to face the end? And you're you're probably like me going to say, no. I think I have more that I need to be about, more than I need to do. What is our problem with facing the end? Why is it instinctively sad if this is it for us? It's, it's sad for Paul in, uh, again, Acts chapter 20. The Ephesian elders say, Paul says, I'll never see you again. And they're crying and Paul's weeping with them. There's a separation and that's why it hurts. The one reason that we're struggling with facing the end when we must is that we're in our unbelief afraid that the good experiences are over. The fun ride is over. The good times are over. I can't do X, Y, and Z anymore. Death row, they talk about the monster's ball, the last meal of the death row inmate. He's not going to ever get another meal, so what do you want to have? What's your last meal? And usually when there's an execution, some newspaper will come out with what the, what the death row inmate had for his last meal. I'm going to have a steak. I'm going to have whatever. I'm going to have Frito pie. Whatever the thing is that I'll never get that again. We're afraid in our flesh that this is the end of the good times. The ride is over. No more opportunities to be with family and friends. You and I need to live every day with our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives the perspective and context for all the blessings when we do. The fear of the end of our lives is unfounded. According to the Apostle Paul, I'm afraid that I won't have these things happen anymore. It's unfounded, Paul tells us. He tells us dogmatically. We think the good stuff is here and now and that our death takes us out of the good stuff. That's how we feel about it. Because there's so many things that we enjoy here and now. Paul could tell you it was better for him to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And he knew that because he had been absent from the body and present with the Lord before. We read in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. But Paul says it this way in Philippians 1. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean, mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Here's my conjecture on the life of Paul. He was stoned outside of Lystra in Acts chapter 13. They left him for dead. He miraculously revived, and they, they, they get up and go into the city. I believe that's the point where Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was caught up to the third heaven to receive revelations from Christ, which he could not utter because he would exalt himself by uttering them. I think that's the point where he knows from experience that he was, it's better to be with the Lord. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ in Philippians 1.23, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So is there going to be a stake in heaven? Am I going to be able to be with my family? Will we see each other? I used to like to play pinochle with my grandpa. Can we play pinochle in heaven? I had some good times. Do they have peanut M&Ms? What about, um, I really like skiing, and it seems like heaven would be a warm place, but not water skiing. I like snow skiing. Is there not some powder in heaven? I mean, there are so many things here on earth we enjoy and we get caught up in. And we can ask all kinds of interesting questions about the things that you and I are doing here in the playpen. 
But it's, I believe it's like this. I think that in this phase of life, it's kind of like first grade to a fifth grader or a 12th grader. The first grader wants the first grader things. Will they have fat red, red pencils for our little baby hands? Will they have fat pencils for us to color? Because I really like the fat pencils. Will I get my 20 box of Crayolas? Because I had a 20 box of Crayolas. And we're like, hey, wait a second. There's a 64 box coming with a little sharpener on the back. Just wait. <laughs> will, will, they have, will they have nap time? Because I hate it. I don't want nap time. That's the worst part. What about recess? There was this one thing. When I was a kid, we had metal toys outside to play on. Metal and wood. It was awesome. We, there were, there were merry-go-rounds that you had to actually not do as much as you could on them in terms of how fast you spin them because you would vomit. Like it, it was fantastic. <laughs> well, they have an East Texas style playground for a first grader is what we're asking. But what we need to think about is that I hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. And what Paul says is that it's better to be with the Lord. You can ask all these questions. Do they have crunchy peanut butter? You can ask all these questions about what you like in this life. But what you need to recognize is the Bible gives you this answer. It's better to be with the Lord. It's better. Now, the reason you and I can't fathom that, the reason we can't get around that is two reasons. We're in our body. And there are so many great things about being in this body. And we can't imagine not being in this body. And the second problem is that God doesn't want us to... uh, take matters into our own hands and get there sooner than his timing. Because that's the greatest arrogance. It's the most arrogant and stupid thing you could ever do with the greatest gift God has given you. Anytime someone comes to me and says, well, I'm really contemplating this, my initial reaction is to begin to shame them. And I'm told that that is an effective method on some people, and so I pray that God will only bring those people to me that are doing that. But it's a huge, huge disgrace. It's very offensive to me that someone would say they would do this with the great gift of human life. And I understand depression. People have trouble. And I'm just saying what I need when, when I'm feeling down and feeling sorry for myself is someone to shake me out of that and say, you're missing it. You're missing it. Whenever, if ever you find me doing that, just give me a little shake. You're missing it. I need it. God save me from people that won't help. <laughs> but Paul says it's better to be with the Lord, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I have a mission to do here, and so I'm going to stay here. And that's Philippians chapter 1 and, and, and 2 Timothy 4. He's like, I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm going to my reward. Literally, he says. The other reason besides good experiences is that we have regrets. If I told you this is the last shot you got, you don't get to do anything, you know, you got six hours, Good luck. You know, make the most of it. You have six hours left of life. What would, you, what would you do with that? You would probably experience some feelings of regret. There are shoes that have been left untied, right? There are things that you should have done that you didn't. There are conversations you have that you haven't had. And um, if you think hard about regret and what you might have done better or missed out on, if you get into that habit, join the French existentialists and just start start navel gazing on all the missteps and mistakes and missed opportunities. And I can do that with you. I can, I can spend some time with you in regret and missed opportunities and blah, 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 wasted time. It's amazing because if you do it long enough, you can live long enough to regret all the time you spent in regret. 
And then if you really, if you, if you spend time with that, you, you regret, but then you regret the regretting, you can triple down and end up regretting the time you've wasted regretting in the original regretting. And that's why people say, don't bother, don't waste time with it. And they're right. But we're afraid we haven't made the mark we should have made. We're afraid that our ambitions, whatever ambitions we tend toward, we haven't reached the zenith of what we might have. We think maybe there's work that remains undone. And I I, I challenge you that if you don't have a little bit of regret about wasted time, you're missing something. But if you're dwelling on it in an unhealthy way, obviously that's a waste of life too, and it's a form of arrogance. But I think the answer is Colossians chapter 3. If you then have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I don't have time for regret about my failures or my missed opportunities if I'm focused on Christ. And if I'm focused on Christ, and that's a command in Colossians 3.1, then I don't ever need to regret that time. I don't need to ever regret that well-spent attention. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who's your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You know what you can do with that concern about missed opportunity or missed ambition or something? Just trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your whole attention on him. Occupy yourself with the things of God. That's where Paul is headed. And so Paul says to the Colossians, this is your focus. You won't have need or time for regret. With what time you have, don't waste it. You'll regret it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, we are calibrated in terms of our ambition. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. That's the thing you need to be moving toward. You don't need to be looking back and regretting failure. You need to be living the moment that you're in toward the judgment seat of Christ. That's, that's a holy ambition. Be pleasing to God. And I love that translation, the New American Standard, that translation of ambition. I think it's a good translation. In John 14, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these he shall do because I go to the Father. You know what you and I should regret is opportunities to walk in dependence on the power of the Spirit to do God's work that we said no to. We should regret the times we had the opportunity to, in the Spirit of God's power, know God through his word. And we said, I'd rather do something else, you know, first grade playpen stuff. We wasted the opportunity to taste heaven now so that we're useful to God now to bring others to know Jesus Christ and eventually go to be with him. We missed opportunities. And so you should use that holy regret of wasted time in life that we all bear some of this and use it for how you live now because Paul can say after a string of days successfully lived, he can say the good fight I have fought. He doesn't say a good fight. He says the good fight. And sometimes I think it's important to bring out the article. Taun, that's the article and the accusative, the fight. He fronts it with the object, which is very unusual for Greek, to put the, the, the fight in the front. Now, of course, in English, we have to translate it, I fought the good fight, which is the correct English rendering. But I just want to show you in Greek, the way he ordered it, he wanted you to focus on the fight itself. It's double underlined, the fight the good one I fought. And that's how he says it, the fight, the call on, the fight, the, the good fight I have successfully fought. He does it again, the race, the course, the drama I have completed. Past completed action for a word that means complete. How about that? The perfect tense for the word to complete. I have in the past completed. 
I've completed completing <laughs> because of the perfect tense. The race I've completed and then the faith. Te pistis, the faith I have guarded. Te reo, to guard. To keep something means to guard. I just, I bring that out because when we say I keep, we don't, you know, what does that mean? You know, my Ziploc bag, yeah, keeps it fresh. Or what does it mean to keep? To keep the faith means that you hang on to it and you live it. I've kept the faith. I have a pastor friend that that's how he signs his letters. Keep the faith. And then he signs his name. The good fight I've fought, the race I've completed, the faith I've kept. Paul's self-evaluation. Now, if this was not inspired by the Spirit of God, by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing with a thorn in the flesh so that he would not exalt himself, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if this wasn't the nature of the apostle Paul, I might think, well, this is a little bit cheeky. This is a little bit, a little bit brazen to say that he's successful. I've done my job. But that's what he says. And he says it as absolute truth with divine perspective because he's writing scripture. This is what God wants you to know about what Paul can know about the end of his life. Beloved, if there was one thing that I could summarize that would dramatize my relationship to you as your pastor, if there was one thing I could say to you that would really get where I feel and think about you. It would be that I want you to be able to say this when you know it's just a few days or hours left. At the end of your race, as you're anticipating the judgment seat of Christ, that you could say, I know that there are things that I haven't done that I could have done. I've forfeited some rewards here and there. But I also know that I have run the race and I've fought the fight and I have kept the faith. If there's anything that could dramatize my relationship to you, it's that you have what God wants you to have at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ. My pastor used to say that a pastor demonstrates his love for his congregation by teaching them the word of God. And that's a paraphrase of John chapter 21. John chapter 21, feed my flock. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my flock, feed my sheep. Why? Because of this, because you have to fight a fight. This is nutrition so that you can be a prize fighter. This is special nutrition so you can be an Olympic sprinter. And this race that we have to run, it's really more the marathon. It's the, it's the long run. It's spiritual food so that you can keep the faith. Remember Paul in 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, of the faith. It's a war. Who wants to fight? I want the cool side of the pillow. I don't want to fight. I want comfort. When I'm too cold, I want to heat up. And when I get too hot, I want to cool off. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be constantly fighting. I want to fight the uncomfortable pews at Preston City Bible Church. You know, I should be more psychologically sensitive and say the extremely comfortable pews. And it's, it's amazing how the longer we go in the service, the more comfortable they get. I'm told. So anyway, um, who wants to fight? I mean, this is a rigorous life he's describing. He's going to his rest. He's going to his reward. Death is the end of his struggle against sin and against Satan's system of deception trying to get, make sure. Again, weld the bus closed, make sure that everybody goes to the lake of fire. 
Paul and you and I and Jesus' mission are trying, are working in the spirit of God's power to present a message that is the only answer that saves people from eternal separation from God. And the enemy of God and his fallen angels are orchestrating a system of deception to make sure that as many human beings as possible go to the lake of fire. And the way you do it is one person at a time, not culture by culture. It's not going to be a spam email, believe in Jesus. It's going to be one person at a time. And you're the people. Lord, save us. It is going to be us that he uses to share him with others. Who wants to run a race? It's a rigorous thing you and I have been asked to do. And how can Paul say at the conclusion of his life, I've kept the faith? Well, I think that, again, back to time. Does everybody agree with me that you have to sleep? You with me? I've tried my best to beat this. You can't. It just means that you're going to sleep longer and you're going to age faster. Ta-da. So, uh, <laughs> I believe God made us to be awake and then to sleep and repeat. Yeah. <laughs> and what that means is that you can't get away from living a day. The day starts when you wake up and it ends when you go to sleep and then you repeat. And that's the way you walk through life. These are the steps of our lives is our days. A life is made up of days. Paul can say, I've kept the faith and I'm successful because he's walked with the Lord every day. Now, okay, there are days that you haven't. Are there seasons that you haven't? Are there weeks, months, years that you said, no, I'm just going to do my thing. It's about me. It's not about him. Where you forfeited the value of the day God gave you. It isn't true necessarily because I think so, right? It's not true because that's our opinion. It's true because it's how it is. It's true because that's how God makes it. Does he value what you do with him day by day? It's a, it's a series of days. Again, you can't get past today. Well, I've got all this stuff that I've failed in the past. Yeah, settled. Past, you can't do anything about it. You can't get hold of tomorrow. You just have today. What are you going to do with it? Paul says, I've... Kept the faith because he did it day by day. That means power from God, listen to it, expressed through Paul. Power from God expressed through you. A purpose and plan designed by God which puts us to work in God's power every day. And always, like with Paul, motivated by, fed by, empowered by this personal relationship we have with God. That's how you fight the fight is you love the first love. And you live your life to please him today. The wisdom of the devotion, the devotion book, Oswald Chambers or uh, Spurgeon, Morning and Eve, the wisdom of the devotion books, not Sarah Young. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's what she's saying. Jesus is saying, I could go all day on that. I have a real problem with, with putting words in Jesus' mouth first person, even if they're correct biblically. That's a, a big... I, Love you. Don't get me going. Don't get me started. But if you grab a devotion and you, and you commit some time to the Lord in the morning, in the evening, if you, if you make today about him, and you know that's the goal, and you start off, Lord, today's about you, you will have a life of days that are pleasing to him. Empowered by your personal relationship with God, your rapport with God. Verse 8. For the future, translating the King James henceforth, unfortunately in the New American Standard, finally this loipos is uh, 
is a, with reference to what's coming. There is reserved for me the crown of the Dikaios. The Stephanos, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S, Stephanos, that's the word for a crown. Not, trans, not Stephanos here, Stephanos and of righteousness. So it's the crown of the righteousness, and I wouldn't put it in my English static translation, but just listen to it. The crown of righteousness. This is laid up for me. I know I'm going to get it in the future. And notice the, um, the future orientation of Paul, even as he's about to die. He's not looking at the fact that I don't know if it's going to hurt when the, when the Roman axe connects to my neck. Will, I, will my, my head have sensation? How long will I have consciousness between the severing of my spine and physical death? I know it's crazy to think, but that's how Paul's about to die. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about the crown of righteousness. Now, about this word, Stephanus. This word is the most common word translated crown in your Bible. Only a few times you have the word diadema, the word for a kingly crown. This is the word for a wreath that would be woven together and given generally for some sort of honor. There are lots of possible uses of these throughout the ancient world. But what Paul is writing about in the Roman culture after telling you to fight and to run is victory. Victory. He has become victorious because he has walked the walk every day. I didn't say he's victorious because he trusted in Christ on the road to Damascus when he first met the Lord Jesus. I said he has walked with the Lord every day. That's the context for him saying he's victorious. And the crown that he gets is called the crown of righteousness. There are several crowns in the New Testament. And they're on another note. But this is something Paul says he's sure to get, which Jesus will give to me, the Lord will give to me on that day. And furthermore, he's the righteous judge. And this is in the order. The future there is reserved for me, the crown of righteousness, which he will give to me on that day, the righteous judge. Sometimes we have regrets of what other people do to us. We don't get to the promotion that we thought we had coming to us because someone misjudges. Something goes wrong in an adjudication and we bear the brunt of it. And then we're stuck in the slow lane for whatever reason. Maybe you've felt unfair treatment. It's one of the great problems of leadership is to judge righteously. And people that have found themselves in a position to to weigh in on on a, a controversy, it can be very hard to be sure you're getting the right answer. But not for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't fail. If you're walking by the Spirit day by day, you can't fail to receive what He has for you. Let me close uh, this portion with an illustration. See if it'll come up. It will. Uh oh. Hang on a sec. I got to get past an ad because that's kind of that's how tech savvy I'm not. The year uh, is 2012. It's September. 
And it's the fail Mary. Do y'all remember the story of the fail Mary pass? This day in NFL history, uh, September 24th of 2012. Do y'all see that? All right. So the story is... um, The referees are on strike. So the NFL is being, being judged by scabs, by people that, I'm sorry, by, by non-union labor referees. Okay. Um, and it's the Seahawks versus the Packers. And it's, it's, it's like Russell Wilson spins around and fires a 40-yard prayer pass to the end zone with the, the clock running out. It's the last play of the game, right? The Seahawks wide receiver Golden Tate and Packers defender M.D. Jennings both get their hands on the football while on the air and come to the ground with a simultaneous possession. One of the referees, the white guy, says, uh, no good. The, 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 the defender got it. And the other referee, wait, I'm sorry. One of the guys says touchdown and the other guy says not good. And at the same time, and so the whole, cra- and the whole game, this is the end of the game. This is win or lose. I think I have, I think they show a video of it. Yeah, here's the play. You saw it here uh, uh, 12 years later, whatever. Now watch the referees. I'm giving it to the Packers guy, but whatever. I'm not. There it is. (laughs) Now, there are people, unfortunately, that were gambling on this game. And their kids, orthodontist, was riding on, you know, whether... Whether uh, this, I mean, this, this affected people. I, I don't really worry about these things that much, but this is considered one of the greatest fails in sports history on making a judgment. And they came back. I don't know if it shows. Yeah, yeah, it's the end. Yeah, they came back and said it was good. The first, the first ruling is good. So um, I think the defender had it myself, but I'm not the judge. Those guys that were not union labor, they were the judge. And, um, and so that it stood, that's how it is. Now, if you're in it for the playoffs or the championship, and you can, you can really be upset about that. We've got a, a, an unrighteous judgment. The reason there's two guys on the field, that, that should be an obvious you know, witness right there. But anyway, the point is, um, we don't have that kind of a judge. And uh, if the Seahawks are supposed to win the game, as they did in that case, then they will. The righteous judge. Not only me, it's not only a crown of righteousness for me, the great Apostle Paul, who's the most prolific disciple-maker in church history, and he is. We're still being disciple-made by Paul right now, being made into disciples of Christ. Not only me, but also those who have loved his appearing. The challenge to me is obvious from Paul's life. Do you? love his appearing do you love the pleasures of this life more than you love your savior do you love the thought of what you get in momentary diversion more than you love his appearing he's coming it's imminent it's imminent for paul we who are alive and remain we caught up together in the clouds it was imminent in paul's day and here's the problem sometimes we don't i'm busy lord i'm doing my thing And God's saying, I want you to be doing my thing. You're mine. 
I gave you the Holy Spirit of God. Again, I think the greatest waste of resources, the greatest squandering of resources in all of human history is that believers in this age have the Spirit of God living in them to accomplish all that God wants. Jesus said greater works than mine because you'll have the Spirit. And we, you know, we're watching TV and stuff. And I'm not saying you, know, you have to unplug all your TVs. I'm saying, beloved, do you love his appearing? Does it motivate you? It, it was with Paul every day. And that love, that rapport with God, that desire to be with him, if you don't feel that, relax. You will. Keep seeking things above where Christ is. Keep talking to God in the name of his son. Keep going after him in this relationship. You will feel the urgency. You will feel the, mis- the, the, the anticipation that you get to see the one that you've come to know. The tragedy of most Christians, I believe, is the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a person talking to a, basically a stranger. It won't be a stranger in terms of relationship or position in Christ. They'll have believed in Christ, but they won't really have known him. They won't really have abided in Christ. They won't really have walked by the Spirit. These are the commands of the New Testament to believers, and too often believers are too busy. Do you love his appearing? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we close this morning with the words of life for any who are in the hearing of my voice present this morning or online, however you're hearing this message. The words of life are simple, profound, eternal, and they make all the difference forever. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. My friends, the repentance that God requires of you is the change of mind that says, I cannot save myself because of my brokenness. I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And that change of mind is a humbling of ourselves because we're saying we're not good enough, that God, who is the only righteous one, has to give me his righteousness or I can't have a relationship with him. That's what believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is about, trusting in the one who died for your sins in your place. Jesus hung between heaven and earth in order to draw all men to himself. And this message of life right now may be how God is drawing you to himself. Consider the claims. He was born, we celebrate at Christmas, and the whole world still makes a big deal that God took on flesh. He had a body so that he could pay for your sins on the cross, and he rose from the dead on the third day, proclaiming victory over sin and death and new life for you and me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel, the glorious righteousness of God imputed to us because we've only trusted in Jesus. And the righteousness that's ours in experience as we walk in the light, as you yourself are in the light. Father, that light calls us to work, to run the race, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith. And we know that that will be to have compassion for the people around us who don't know you. Father, we may not in that compassion break through, but your spirit certainly can. I ask that you'd equip us to do that just as in the life of the Apostle Paul, sharing the Lord Jesus with whosoever would hear it because your spirit is preparing the hearts. Father, let us be with you in this work. Let your spirit work through us and let us glorify you first in our households and then outside into the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.